being involved and being informed about the profession. And if people aren't ready to volunteer with the NAT or things like that, to me, it's the way you carry yourself every day as an athletic trainer. If you're in the elevator and someone doesn't know what an athletic trainer is and you give your little you know, elevator speech, you're helping the profession. Welcome to the NATA cast, the official podcast of the National Athletic Trainers Association. The NATA cast is your audio source for exclusive insight from NATA, our leadership, and athletic training thought leaders. This show will feature in-depth conversations about healthcare topics that interest you, the athletic trainer. Today's discussion is part of a special series titled Dedicated, in which we visit with ATs who have a passion for the profession. Whether it's in a leadership role, an AT who is making strides in research, or a member who is bringing increased awareness to the profession by working in an emerged setting. Dedicated highlights their stories and path as they advance athletic training. Hello, and welcome to the Dedicated Podcast Series. I'm your host, Katie Scott, Certified Athletic Trainer and Association Project Manager at NATA. Today's guest is NATA Board of Director, District 8 Director, Lynn Nakagawa. Hi, Lynn. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So, Lynn, you are rolling off this June. I can't believe you're rolling off already. I feel like you just came on as the District 8 Director. Time really kind of flew. Yeah, five years goes quick. And sometimes I feel like I was cheated, you know, a couple of years with COVID. And so trying to make the best of it, the last run. And so, yeah, you know, enjoying that last half a year, I guess. Looking back on the five years, what's been some of your proudest moments? Um, I think the proudest moments would just be, you know, the, the closeness that we've been able to bring the board together, bring the profession together, bring athletic trainers across the country together. Um, you know, through COVID, I think, um, the profession, you know, I, I think we physically got further, but, you know, I think coming out of it, we're going to be closer than ever. And I think the We've been able to, you know, kind of the dreaded word of pivot, um, you know, but the ability to do things like this, um, Zoom meetings and podcasts and just keeping members connected, I think is going to be so much better coming out of it. And so for me, you know, I think the thing that has changed a lot in my five years is just bringing the profession closer together. And that's what I'm excited about. Do you have any future goals or plans for next things after rolling off the board? Oh gosh, people ask that a lot. And um, you know, I, I don't know. Right now, I my immediate reaction is just to um kind of take some time away and have that time back. Um, but I know that itch is gonna come back, right? So I'm sure I'll be doing something. Um, but I also say I'd like to be a little bit more involved in the my university campus. You know, I've been so involved with the profession of athletic training. Um, I'd like to kind of get involved here at the university a little bit more and just the community a little more. So going back to the beginning, how were you first exposed to athletic training? Uh, I, I'm not typical um, high school student athlete. Um, I was lucky I had athletic trainers at my high school. Um, got injured. I was never majorly injured, but I had a pretty decent quad pull. Um, and that's, you know, when I first got exposed to athletic training. And at that time, I, I was your typical person who thought I wanted to do physical therapy. Um, I was volunteering at a PT clinic, you know, to get hours and and all of that. But just when I saw what athletic trainers did, um, I thought, oh, that was cool. And I think I initially thought it was going to be kind of that step stone. Um, I went to undergrad at the University of Puget Sound and and became involved in athletic training. Um, My sophomore year, I did play soccer one year. And that first year, uh, I had a pretty severe eye injury. 
um, that actually kept me out for a couple months. And so, you know, immediately got involved in athletic training, but still had full intentions of applying to PT school. That's why I went to University of Puget Sound. Um, but kind of my junior year, I thought, oh gosh, I, I don't want to be stuck in a clinic. I don't want to be, you know, doing uh, what I was, you know, seeing physical therapists doing. At that time, physical therapists weren't really as involved in collegiate athletics. Um, so, you know, I, I think my junior, senior year, I, I, athletic training kind of became my destination career. Um, and from then I went on to be a graduate assistant athletic trainer. Um, and then, yeah, the rest is kind of history. I've just stayed in the collegiate setting the entire time. That's what I was going to say. Is college university always been your setting from day one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So a lot of people, I came from the college university setting as well, but for a lot of ATs, um, the college university setting is not appealing to them or they get into it and realize it's not really a great fit for them. What about it do you love so much? Because you can hear the passion in how much you just love it and are tapped into it. So what about it is super appealing and, and great for you? I always say if I were to go to some other setting and I'd lose the thing I truly enjoy the most here is um, I, you know, the ability to be with that one team, that one group of athletes all year round. So you, even if that person gets hurt, right, you might do their rehab, take them through off season conditioning and workouts, and then, you know, seeing them compete in during season. So I I love that um, the ability to be with that same student athlete, their entire career here. And that's something I feel like if I went to high school, you know, I may not be able to see them day in and day out practices, traveling with them on the road. And so that's, that's truly what keeps me, um, I think, engaged and excited about the collegiate setting. Um, I know the time commitment is off, you know, is often the, the issue with the collegiate setting, but for me, it's just the ability to kind of be there throughout that student athlete's entire career. Yeah, I would say now having been out of it for, oh, I can't believe it's been eight years that I transitioned over to association management, but for me, the biggest eye-opener was um, I'm a very family-oriented person, and you really develop a family, in a sense, mm-hmm. working in the college-university environment. Because like you said, there's so many hours that go into working. Um, the people you work with kind of become like a family to you, right? And, and outside even of the student-athletes. So it was very strange then going into this role with association management, where I still love my coworkers. We get along great. It's just different. Mm-hmm. Um it's it really is just different. It's hard to explain. You kind of got to be in it to understand it. People can't see you, but you're nodding your head. So, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah you're kind of going through the, you know, the ups and downs together, and so it makes you closer for sure. Absolutely. So, looking to your leadership pathway and and how you got to being a district director, where did you begin? What was your first volunteer experience? My first volunteer experience, I was in District Ten at the time, um, and. Uh, EDAC, the Ethnic Diversity Advisory Committee, was transitioning from a council to a full district-based committee. Um, and so they they never had someone from District 10 on it. And I saw it, kind of, I don't know, it wasn't called range of motion back then. I have no idea what it was called, but, you know, some email call to action type thing. Um, and at that time, I was kind of mid to late 20s. I had done the path of kind of what I thought was my, you know, what was expected. I did undergrad. I went to grad school and I was in a full-time job. I was working women's basketball at the time and I kind of felt stuck. Um, I felt like, hmm, this is where I thought I'd be, you know, par five division one job um, where, you know, later in my career. And I was, I was there in my mid twenties and needed something else rather than just the day to day. And so I had never been involved 
with the NET at all. Um, as a student, I was not involved. And so it was a real kind of a weird feeling that I didn't know what was what I was getting into. I didn't know what it entailed at all, but just decided to throw my name in the hat. Um, I got it. And then that first taste of volunteerism and, you know, working with other athletic trainers across the country just kind of suckered me in. And, you know, and it, I, I don't, I've never left volunteering since then, honestly. What about it was appealing to you? Like, what is it about it that got you sucked in? Um, It's, you know, like you said, the collegiate setting, you see the same people every day and, and it was just something different, you know, and, and the passion you hear in others leaders voice, it, it reinvigorates me, you know, and being able to collaborate with other athletic trainers across the country and just seeing how other people do things or, you know, and it, if, even if I thought I was doing something great, there was always other ideas, other ways that people saw or did things. And, and just, it was just being around other passionate athletic trainers is kind of what got me. Yeah. Looking back on um, your time then as a volunteer, have there been any kind of spotlight moments where maybe that's what led you to look at becoming a district director or taking that next path or, or any major like learning moments during that path that you want to share? I don't know if it's necessarily learning moments, but just learning about myself. Um, like I said, I was never, I was never involved as a student. I was never a leader for sure. Um, but just having that kind of confidence by others, um, and then you eventually get voluntold asked to do things right. But just feeling that, um, that confidence that others had in me, honestly, has kind of been kind of the moments that have kept me going and kind of pushed me to do other things I never thought I could or even wanted to do. And, you know, and once you're in it, then I realized, you know, why I'm in it, but it took others to kind of get me there. And for me, that's what is the exciting thing about leadership is just, you know, that, that the feeling you get out of it, as much as time and effort you put in, I think it's, I get as much out of it. Talk to me a little bit more about um, the point in the pathway where running for district director came to fruition for you? Was that something that you knew you wanted to do? Was someone there to kind of voluntold or entice you to run for it? Because that's that's kind of a big deal and, and can be really vulnerable because it's an election-based process. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, like I said, I've, I've always, district secretary was kind of my perfect niche, right? I love doing the busy work kind of behind the scenes, um, being, you know, asked to organize things, do things, kind of keep the the train moving in the right direction. That that was my wheelhouse. That's what I felt comfortable doing. Um, so I kind of thought, you know, I'd, I'd like to kind of get to that point. Um, you know, I started in our state association, the Hawaii Athletic Trainers Association, and and then kind of moved to the district level. And I didn't realize when I was doing it uh, that there were a lot of things. There was a lot of reasons that people pushed me to do it. Um, we've never had a district director from Hawaii. There was never a elected board member on the district eight um, from Hawaii. And so I had some people encouraging me to do that, to give people from Hawaii a voice. Um, I had others encouraging me to do it just because they thought I could do it. So then once I became district secretary, the few directors before me, that was kind of the assumed thing that you would run for director. Scott Saylor and Carolyn Peters were before me. And I mean, from the very beginning, people were like, okay, you know, district directors next. And I thought, oh, heck no. Um, That's not me, not at all. Um, and then, yeah, as it got closer and closer, the same people who twisted my arm and 
convinced me I could do district secretary, you know, convinced me to do district director. And I'm grateful and I owe everything to them because, like I said, I would never have thought of doing it. Um, and I am so glad that I did. What would be your advice to our younger listeners who maybe are interested in getting started in their leadership pathway, but either are feeling overwhelmed or unsure where to start? Whenever I talk to students or you know young professionals, I always say find your passion. Right? If you're if you're doing something you love, it doesn't really feel like it's work. Um, you may be putting a lot of time, energy, and effort into it, but if you truly love it, then it's not going to feel like work. And so. You know, for me, I always say there's when I look at the committees, there's some committees that I'm like, oh, gosh, I would never have the passion to be involved with something like that. And so it's that's for for me, I think that's why EDAC was a great place to start. It was something I was passionate about. Um, And and so it's finding your passion. And and I think once you're in it, like I said, it reinvigorates me as much as time, energy and you know, effort I put in selfishly. I think I get more out of it. I'm going to meetings, going to you know, the annual meeting, the conventions, talking to other athletic trainers. It's when I go to that, that I, you know, I can come back to work and I feel reinvigorated and I have that energy to kind of keep going, you know? And so I, I, I honestly think if it wasn't for volunteerism, maybe I would be those individuals who, you know, contemplate leaving the profession. Um, but it's, it's my fellow colleagues, my fellow athletic trainers that honestly make me feel like I love what I do. And, and I think, those connections are built and made stronger when you volunteer and, you know, are involved in the profession and involved in the NATA. You kind of mentioned this a little earlier when we were talking about um, future goals, but volunteering isn't really just confined to one thing. Like I know we talk pretty biasly about state district and national volunteering for the AT profession, but you mentioned um, getting involved at your university as well. And there, there are definitely multiple ways to get plugged into helping the profession. Talk to me a little bit more about how one could get involved with their university as an athletic trainer. Yeah, you know, I think it's always just about being involved and being informed about the profession. And and I, you know, and if people aren't ready to volunteer with the NAT or things like that, to me, it's the way you carry yourself every day as an athletic trainer. Um, you know, when you if you're in the elevator and someone doesn't know what an athletic trainer is and you give your little, you know, elevator speech, you're helping the profession. You know, even if you're educating one individual at a time as to what athletic trainers do, I, I think that's that's helping the profession. That's, you know, helping athletic training as a whole. And so when I talk about wanting to get involved here at the university, um, it's for athletic training and for athletics as a whole. Right. I just want to be able to build that bridge between campus the academic side. And sometimes athletics gets a little bit of that negative connotation, right? It's that side of campus that, you know, they don't care about school and all of that. And so just the ability to, you know, make those connections. And and even if it's just to kind of showcase what we do here on campus for our student athletes, you know, it's not just the taping ankles, it's not just the giving them water, but the ability that we have to take care of the student athlete as a whole, right? Their well-being, um, the mental health, like the mental health programs I think we have here in athletics sometimes is a little bit ahead or more efficient than what the campus does. And so if campus resources can help athletics and if athletics can help campus resources, you know, I, I think that's great for the university, but it's also great for the profession, right? They start to see truly what athletic trainers do day in and day out and and maybe just opens that opportunity for more collaboration. Advocacy at the college university level for athletic training really has never been more important than it is today, too. I know a lot of people 
like to throw out the term AT shortage going on in that setting. And, and we know there's more of a environment opportunity or a market opportunity where I feel really positive about where athletic training is going. I think there's a really great opportunity to positively advocate and see some really great change. Um, but it's going to take a, a major effort from everybody, from grassroots all the way up to our association level. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I remember going through school and your advisors, your mentors would tell you, don't take that job with poor pay, but people always did. And I, it, the cool thing is, is I think now people aren't, right? People aren't taking the job in the collegiate setting that pays $30,000 and expects you to work 80 hours a week. And so it's funny because kind of what was preached, I would say, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, we're hitting it now where athletic trainers aren't putting up with that. Um, so, you know, some of us that are left here are struggling a little bit because we, we might be short staffed or, but, you know, I think it's got to get worse before it can get better. Right. So now the, there is that demand for that athletic trainer. And, and I think, um, administrators are starting to see the need, um, the importance of it. And it's, you know, I, I think we need to kind of take this opportunity to show our value, show our worth, but, you know, also not settle. Um, you know, we're not going to settle for that low-level paying job. And, you know, and I, I think so, like I said, it's going to have to, it's going to get a little tough and it might have to get a little worse, but just, I share your optimism for sure that I think it's in the end, it's going to make it a better um, environment, a better setting for athletic trainers. Absolutely. Cause we know without a doubt, we're going to be needed. I mean, I think of, you know, football is an obvious one. We just saw an example of what can occur um, with the Monday night football incident. But we also think of sports, maybe others don't, but like track and field, pole vaulting. An athletic trainer has to be there if they're going to be jumping. Um, so there's no doubt that we're we're needed in the setting. Um, but like you said, I, it's probably going to get a little bit worse before it gets better. But I think together we can come together to support each other and, and just find ways to try and get over that hurdle as quickly as possible. And for me, it's been really uh good problem to have here and I'm not sure how to solve it, but our coaches are realizing the value of it. You know, travel here at the University of Hawaii um, soccer, my shortest road trip is typically six to seven days, mm -hmm. um, sometimes 10 to 13. And, but coaches that typically didn't travel an athletic trainer now wants their athletic trainer to travel with them. And so it's causing more staff shortage, right? Spreading us thinner. But, you know, I, I have teams like swimming and tennis that typically have not traveled an athletic trainer wanting their athletic trainer to go with them. And so, you know, I think even coaches are seeing the need, the value um, to their student athletes. And so it's a great problem to have. And, you know, I think staffing is going to have to catch up with it at some point, but who, who better advocates for the athletic trainers and the coaches and the student athletes, right. Who are kind of truly more the patients. And so I think they can, if they can help advocate, you know, sometimes we can beat our own drum, but sometimes when it's, you know, those stakeholders that are you know, involved too, and they might have more powerful voice. And I know, and you know, behind the scenes, I mean, there's a lot going on for the college university athletic training right now around this topic. ICSM has been really busy producing resources and support to try and help the athletic trainer get through this time period with our market shift. Um, can you talk a little bit more about those resources and, and task forces that are, are going on to address our current challenges? Yeah. So ICSM, um, wow, the work they do is amazing. Um, you know, I think even pre-COVID, through COVID, you know, they're providing resources. Um, and that and those resources during COVID were crazy, right? Because nobody, it's not like anyone could tap into their past experiences or their area of expertise because nobody knew what the heck COVID was 
about. And so just the resources that the ICSM were able to put out during um, COVID were great, um, kind of coming out of it. And, you know, now with the shortage or, you know, the setting um, specific issues, uh, challenges we have, you know, um, uh, there, there would be a white paper coming out really soon about the collegiate athletic trainer and, and kind of addressing that, you know, is it a shortage? Is it people not, you know, settling for the pay? And so um, I'm, I'm excited for the membership to see that. I think it'll be great for the ability for athletic trainers to kind of take that to administrators and, and show them, you know, what, what the profession needs and what we need the support of administrators um, for. Um, there's another task force, compensation task force, you know, that will kind of look at exactly what people are complaining about in the collegiate setting. You know, you see coaches making double, triple, you know, tenfold as much money as we do. And, you know, that's not specific to collegiate setting, but I think that's one of the barriers or challenges that that are making people leave the collegiate setting. So I'm excited, um, kind of the work that's coming out of there. And just, you know, there's always nonstop collaboration with the NCAA. And you know, I, uh, I've i had a couple of phone calls recently um, with Brent, just, you know, just as the NCAA evolves, as collegiate athletic evolves with NIL and transformation committee, um, you know, ICSM is ready and prepared to continually support the collegiate athletic trainer and just providing those resources um, that they can take with them that helps them, you know, whether it be in their day-to-day job or just helps them talk to administrators, you know, whether it helps them try to get better salaries for their staff. And so ICSM puts out amazing um, resources. Absolutely. We'll make sure to link all of these things in the show notes for the podcast so that our listeners okay. can have quick access. Because like you said, even after you and I, we're going to record this, some time's going to pass, it's going to become live, people are listening to it. There's probably going to be more. The nimbleness mm-hmm. uh, and ability to produce quick things with ICSM has always been really cool to watch. Um, so big yeah. shout out to them. So Lynn, another question I have for you, and we've talked about it a little bit, is with college university setting, another challenge we see is that ability to produce a work-life ratio that's conducive to being able to be an employee, be a volunteer, have a personal life. How do you balance that um, with the amount of professional volunteerism you've done? And how do you do that successfully? I'm not going to lie. I don't think I'm someone that you could say do it as I do because I don't think I do a good (laughs) work-life ratio. Um, But what I've come to realize is that I'm not on the board of directors forever, right? So I made that choice a little bit. I made that choice knowing that, you know, the time's limited five years and it, it went quick. Um, and so, but like I, I go back to when I love what I'm doing, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like work. And so it is a choice I, I made my family. I think they, they see what I do, but I don't think sometimes they fully understand um, exactly how many hours it may be. And so, but uh, I think it just goes all back to finding your passion. Um, and like I said, if you're, if you're not working if you're not doing something you love, it's going to feel like work. It's going to feel like a chore, but I don't think I ever feel like coming to work is a chore. I don't feel like, you know, hopping on a committee meeting or a board of directors meeting is, is a chore. And so I, I truly look forward to it. Um, it's something I love. Um, the time difference can be a challenge, but it's also, a. I, I also think it's beneficial to me. Sometimes, um, the board of directors board meetings are typically 5am or 6am here. So it takes that commitment for me to get up and do it. But I also think it makes it easier at times because 
I don't have the student athletes coming into my office, you know, every two minutes asking for something. So I think it's, you know, just finding a way to get it done and, and it doesn't feel like work. You know, I, I, I do know once I'm done with the board, it, I will take a little bit of time to exhale and get a little bit more of my ratio going in the other direction towards family and friends. Um, but it, it's, it's a constant, I think, ebb and flow, right? It's, it's not like work and the NATA uh, volunteerism dominates my life all the time. You know, that there for sure are times where you, you're going to choose family and friends over um, that. And, and it's just being able to make those choices and, you know, balance it. One should never be always on the back burner. Um, it's that kind of balance and give and take from all sides of it. Yeah. And feel good about it because there's absolutely nothing wrong with prioritizing family. Right. Yeah. Um, I have just loved seeing the amount of support that everyone has had for each other and being able to prioritize that too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, the NETA becomes your, I don't know, third family, right? You have your real family, you have your work family. Um, and you know, I also have my NATA family. So when I'm going to meetings, it's, it's, I'm leaving one family behind, but I'm going to be with my other family. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel like I'm making sacrifices per se. Yeah, absolutely. So Lynn, um, kind of the tradition I know that happens on the board is when you are oncoming as a new board member, uh, you give a presentation, a little bit about yourself and within there, they do ask you to share some favorite leadership quotes. Do you have favorite leadership quotes? Have they evolved over time since you gave your initial presentation? Um, my my leadership quotes, I am not that vocal leader, right? I'm probably one of the quietest in the boardroom. And so for me, leadership quotes are, um, we all know John Maxwell. And so one of my favorite John Maxwell quote, um, he says, if you are a leader, the true measure of your success is not getting people to work. It's not getting people to work hard. It's getting people to work hard together. And that takes commitment. And so for me, it all goes back to, I want to inspire people. Um, I think a lot of people are hard workers, but if they're working hard by themselves, you know, I, I feel like they may all feel hopeless or that their efforts are wasted. And so to me, it's inspiring people to exactly what he says is to get to work together. And I, I think success as a group, as a team is often more rewarding than, you know, just knowing, oh, I did a good job today. And you go home and you're by yourself. Right. So for me, that's one of my quotes um, of leadership quotes that I like, but one of my favorite um, all-time quotes is Maya Angelou. Um, and she says, people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And that's a quote I carried with me throughout my career um, because I, I could be, you know, sometimes the smartest athletic trainer with the best hands-on skill. That student athlete may not appreciate them if, if you don't connect with them. Right. Um, and so that's something that I've, kept as a, you know, as a student, as an athletic training student, um, as I moved into a career athletic trainer, and then I've taken that with me as a leader. Um, you know, I, I try to take the time to get to know the people I'm working with, um, and, and treating the person as a whole, right. It's not just what they do for athletic training, what they do, you know, as the student athlete. And so that for me, my kind of my personal thoughts in life, I've, I've transitioned that to me as a leader because I know I'm not going to be that vocal leader. So one of the things that President Derringer has talked about often and has made it kind of her mission as president is to leave the profession better than she found it. Um, looking back on your five years as a board member, how do you feel like you've done that? And how do you feel leaders are able to successfully leave things better than they found it? Yeah. So going back to me being a not a vocal leader, you know, I, I don't 
I don't think I'm, I don't think my biggest impact per se is, you know, what I say or do in the boardroom. For me, I think it's, I, and it also goes back to you know, being from Hawaii and being that first board member from Hawaii. I, I think my biggest impact is going to be giving people who may not feel like they have a voice a voice, you know, whether it's representing athletic trainers from Hawaii, whether it's representing athletic trainers in the collegiate setting, um, ethnic diversity, all sorts of diversity is just, you know, I, I, for me, that's kind of my passion. And so I think that's where I would like to hope I've made an impact on the profession. Um, you know, getting people to see kind of what athletic trainers in Hawaii can have, you know, achieved and just sometimes even the far West, right. It's people way out there. (laughs) Um, and so it's just giving people a voice. Um, and I think it goes back to finding your passion and, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to speak passionately you know, about certain things, um, all aspects of athletic training. So for me, diversity, having a voice, inspiring, you know, young professionals, inspiring the students is kind of where I feel like I can kind of make that grassroots effort and impact on the profession. We have some quick fire questions. Would you be interested in, in playing a fast fire round with us? Sure. Okay. If you were an animal, what would you be? A dolphin. Ooh. <laughs> it's the Hawaii thing. And I, when they just go along their merry way and it looks, even if it's, you know, they're working hard swimming, it just looks so effortless. I love it. You're stranded on a deserted island. What three items are you bringing with you? Some kind of music to listen to. My cell phone, because your cell phone can do everything. Um, my beach chair. Okay. I need my beach chair. <laughs> if you could meet any person from history, living or not living, who would you meet and why? Um, he's relatively young, but Barack Obama, just him being born and raised here in Hawaii has just always inspired me. So that's someone I'd love to meet. Are you a cat or a dog person? Cat. If you could bring any fashion trend back, what would it be? The hair wave. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Can you play a musical instrument? Oof, I played the piano and clarinet growing up, have not touched either since high school, I would say. What was your first job? Working at a plant store, selling plants. Do you like plants now? Would you own, do you have plants at your house? I still plants. No, I have one orchid that a friend just gave to me for Christmas. And so the goal is to keep it alive in my office. Favorite TV show? Gilmore Girls. Favorite album of all time? Um, one of the Israel Makaviva Ole. Is that what you're bringing onto the deserted island? Oh, I could. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Calming, soothing music. Can you speak any languages in addition to English? Um, does Hawaiian pigeon call? No. Yes, it does. <laughs> Because um, people make fun. I mean, I don't speak that pigeon, but sometimes that it just comes out and people are like, what did you say? And then I, I did take Japanese growing up. So I do speak a little bit Japanese. Early bird, night owl. I used to be a night owl, shifted to early bird. Same. I almost wonder if like that just happens naturally as people get older. Yes. Favorite meal of the day? Dinner, but I love breakfast food for dinner. What motivates you? Honestly, building friendships and connections and, you know, being around people. 
Salty or sweet food? Ooh, salty. Favorite pizza topping? Mushrooms. How do you like your eggs? I like omelets. Favorite place you've traveled? Mexico. Favorite holiday? Thanksgiving for the food. Lynn, what's a piece of advice you would give your younger self? Um, to kind of take chances, push yourself outside of your comfort zone. Um, I think my younger self, like I said, kind of just did what was expected. Um, and, you know, I think me pushing myself outside of my comfort zone has opened so many doors for me, has, has changed my life, honestly. And if you could choose to forever stop aging, would you? Or just not feeling old. I don't mind being old. I don't like feeling old. I don't know that I would. I feel like, um, I guess it depends. When you get to a certain point, I'm sure you kind of would like to stop aging. But I don't know that I would stop at this point. I feel like it's like a, a nice wine. It gets better, right? It gets better as it ages. Except when I get off a five-hour plane ride on my back hurts. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm old. <laughs> it's the physical aches and pains that I don't like about getting old. Well, Lynn, this has been great. Um, we've had a lot of fun on today's podcast. We've talked about a lot of really great things. So thank you for your time. Any final thoughts for the membership and our listeners that you have today? Um, I'm just excited to, you know, as we come out of COVID to see more and more people in person. Um, last year, Philadelphia was, I feel like our little trial run. So I'm hoping um, as we kind of go back to more and more in-person in meetings, just the ability to see more people, meet more people. Um, and just, you know, athletic training. I'm so passionate about the profession, so passionate about the NATA. And so I just, I love meeting and talking with new people. And that's something I look forward to, you know, even when I'm not on the board anymore. Well, definitely, I, I know I can speak on behalf of our membership when we say thank you. Thank you so much for the five years that you've dedicated and volunteered to the association. I know it wasn't easy by any means. But please stick around. We would love to continue to see you and say hello. And I swear I'm going to get to Hawaii one of these times. It's the last <laughs> state I need to go visit to hit them all. Um, oh, yeah. So we'll, absolutely. We'll get and that's there. A, that's another great thing, right? Like you meet people and now every place you go, you know, an athletic trainer there. And it just, you know, it makes vacations easier and more fun. And you pick people's brain. What should I do? Where should I stay? And so, yeah, that's always we can't wait to have you here at some point. Oh, Hopefully not work-related. No, absolutely not. <laughs> um, but with all that said, just thank you so much for the five years you dedicated as a board member. And, and like I said, I, I know we all hope to continue to see your smiling face down the road. And I, I have no doubt that you'll continue to be actively involved in some way. To yeah, those it's really been a pleasure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. To those listeners we have on the podcast today, as always, we welcome and encourage your feedback. You can do that by sending us um, comments and feedback on social media, which will link all of our social media handles to the show notes. You can also email us at engage at neta.org. We definitely take all of your feedback and questions and try to incorporate them into the show as much as possible. And, and they just make things really great, like the quick fire questions. That's one of my favorite <laughs> things to do. Um, until then, make sure to go back and check through all of our different podcast series and show notes. There's a lot of great resources and links. And until then, have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to Dedicated, a special series of the NATA cast. 
All resources mentioned during this episode can be found in the show notes or at nata.org slash podcast. Listen, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to let us know what you thought or even what you want to hear in future episodes, send an email to the NATA cast at nata.org. And to make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the NATA cast and rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time.